This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host an annual conference, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Dr. Andrew Newberg. Dr. Andrew Newberg is Director of Research at the Myrna Brind Center for Integrative Medicine at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and Medical College. He is also Adjunct Assistant Professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Newberg has published over 100 research articles, essays, and book chapters, and is the co-author of the best-selling books, Why God Won't Go Away. Brain Science and the Biology of Belief, and How God Changes Your Brain, Breakthrough Findings from a Leading Neuroscientist. With Sounds True, Dr. Newberg has created a three-session audio program called God and the Brain, the Physiology of Spiritual Experience, where he shares his groundbreaking research into the fascinating links between faith, neurobiology, and the mysteries of the psyche. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Andrew and I spoke about some of the new major discoveries in the emerging field of neurotheology. We also talked about studies that have been done with people who are both meditators and people who have been engaged in prayer and what has been discovered about the changes in the brain that occur during meditation and prayer. We also looked at the question, what happens when we die, and what neurotheology has to say about this question. And finally, we looked at the link between the brain, spirituality, and our health, and the role that faith plays in changing our brain and changing the quality of our life. Here's my conversation with Dr. Andrew Newberg. Andrew, you work in a field called neurotheology. And to begin, right here at the beginning, help us understand what this new field is. Well, I think most broadly, the concept of neurotheology refers to a field of study where we are trying to look at the intersection between the human brain and our various religious and spiritual ideas and practices and experiences. Uh, I personally, for, for, for me, for the term to actually work as a field of study, I tried to, f- to define both the neuro side and the theology side more broadly. So for me, the neuro side refers not only to neuroscience, but to psychology and to health, uh, to anthropology, all the different ways that we can kind of get at how our mind, how our brain actually works for us. And on the theology side, of course, theology is 
a specific discipline, and I certainly think that we can engage that discipline, which is kind of the the deductive, rational process that derives from a different, a particular religious tradition. But it also, for me, to, uh, to make neurotheology work includes religious practices like meditation and prayer, different religious and spiritual experiences, uh, mystical experiences, near-death experiences, and so forth, uh, and and even some of the uh, different healings and prayer practices that people can do. So it really engages all the different varieties of religious and spiritual experiences and practices that, that people can have, as well as theology itself. And did this field of study formally come into existence with the introduction of functional MRI equipment? Is that when this field was birthed? Well, I think the field uh, certainly took off when the ability to image the brain, uh, the, the the working brain while a person is alive and doing a different practice like meditation or prayer certainly had a huge impact on the field. Um, but it actually, the origins of it begin um, I mean, to some degree, even go back thousands of years. If you go back to the uh, to Buddhist and Hindu writings, you can see a lot of interest in the relationship between the human mind and our psyche, and our and our consciousness and our spiritual selves. Uh, even in the Western traditions, in the Bible, even though it doesn't specifically engage in what's going on in the brain, there's this notion about how humans behave and how we function as human beings that has something to do with how we are ultimately religious or spiritual as beings as well. Uh, but some of the early work by my late colleague Eugene DeQuilly and several other scholars probably began in the in the late 60s, early 70s. There people were doing some studies looking at the electrical activity of the brain using electroencephalography (EEG) when people engaged in practices like transcendental meditation, and uh, and some of the work of of, of my colleague uh, Gene DeQuilly looked at some of the the animal studies and other human studies that helped us to learn about what was going going on in the brain and developed the some of the the initial hypotheses as to what was then going on when we felt something religious or felt something spiritual. So so the beginnings were probably a little bit before the time that we actually had the ability to image the brain, but certainly in the last 10 or 15 years since we've had the development of functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, uh, positron emission tomography, PET imaging, all these different ways of looking at the functional changes in the brain in a variety of different states, uh, that has really just been uh, very, very important to advancing this field and being able to really test the, some of those early hypotheses and, and then to develop further models and further hypotheses based on the results. And for somebody like me who's new to the world of neurotheology, can you orient me to the main discoveries that have taken place in the last decade that are the most important things that really everybody in this field could agree on? Well, I think that... um, uh, the, the most important discoveries occur on, along several different lines of research, and, and perhaps the most relevant one, what we were just talking about, about some of the imaging studies that have been done looking at practices like meditation, like prayer, and other types of spiritual states. Uh, and, and I think probably... Uh, 
you know, the way most of these studies have played out is people engage in some kind of practice. They'll do a meditation practice, for example, or a prayer practice, and they'll do this practice while their brain is being scanned so we can actually see the functional changes that are going on in the brain when they engage in this practice. And what I think most of the data have been showing, if we start to cull all of the different research studies that are now in existence, uh, we find several broad categories of, of results that I think many people would agree on. I think perhaps one of the most important is, is that there doesn't seem to be one single spot in the brain that seems to be related to our religious or spiritual activities. But uh, when we look at these practices, when we look at when people engage in their religious and spiritual uh, activities, we see many different parts of the brain being active. There's a whole network of structures that seem to get involved, uh, parts of the brain that help us with our emotions, parts of the brain that help us with our thought processes, with language, and we can talk about all these in more detail uh, in a few moments. But, but there are many different parts of the brain that become involved in these kinds of religious and spiritual phenomena, which to me make a lot of sense because if you actually hear people describe describe those experiences, uh, people use many different kinds of descriptors. So sometimes a religious experience is an emotional experience. Sometimes it's a very positive one. Sometimes it's a very negative one. Uh, sometimes people think about something. Sometimes people think about the causality of God or, or the ability of God to have some impact in the world. Uh, and sometimes it, it may be uh, a behavior that somebody does, a feeling of forgiveness um, that, uh, that engages other parts of our brain. So what most of our research studies have shown is that there is a, a, a network of structures that become active when people engage in religious or spiritual activities or practices that, um, that tie very much into the actual subjective nature of what those experiences are. So I, that, that's one part of the, the findings. Um, I think another part of the findings, which is, is also very relevant and, and very practical, is how do religious and spiritual practices affect us as people? And sometimes this gets a little bit away from the brain stuff per se, but tells us a little bit more about if we meditate or if we pray, uh, what happens in the brain? What happens to us as human beings? Does it help to improve our psychological well-being, our mental health, our memory, our physical, and, uh, our physical health, and our physiology? And there's a lot of research now which is pointing to the fact that, by and large, religious and spiritual practices like meditation and prayer, tend to be very beneficial for us as people. It tends to be beneficial to lower our levels of anxiety, lower our levels of depression, uh, improve our blood pressure and our heart rate, and, uh, and perhaps even increase or augment the, the functions of our immune system and our hormonal systems. So these practices are not just going on in the brain itself, but have uh, deep reverberations throughout how our entire body works. So it's not just the brain, but it's the brain and the body as they are connected to each other. Uh, and uh, so those are two of the most sort of more practical aspects of this type of research. And I think on, on the more esoteric side, where this research is beginning to go, or at least I certainly hope it is, is the notion that we actually can utilize this information to tell us something about 
what it means to be spiritual, what it means to be religious. So there's there's some information that we are now learning about what spirituality in and of itself is all about, what religiousness is all about, uh, and how that has an impact on us as human beings. And uh, I mean, ultimately, I hope that uh, we'll be able to use this information even more to help us with specific philosophical and theological ideas. But I think that's still a little bit down the road. So I was completely with you on your first two findings from neurotheology, that there's a network of different parts of the brain that are active and that this is beneficial for our health. I'm not sure I followed you on the third. How does spirituality impact our greater worldview, our greater way of being? Well, yes. I mean, what 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 this is is really talking a little bit more about um, how does our mind, how does our brain actually engage in religious or spiritual practices. Um, so if we are now going to say, let, let's, let's think about a, a, a theological problem that we're trying to resolve, uh, you know, the nature of morality, for example. Um, there are research studies now that tell us about what goes on in the brain when we try to resolve a moral question. There's information in our brain scan studies that tell us something about where our freedom of, where our, what our perceived free will comes from. And this kind of information actually can now be brought into the philosophical or the theological realm to try and decide uh, or try to help us decide uh, how we can engage in those questions, those philosophical and theological questions, by now also bringing in this physiological information. So it, it, it doesn't it doesn't take away, so to speak, the um, the philosophical aspects of these arguments. I mean, certainly, you know, you know, the great thinkers Kant and Descartes and and, uh, and so forth throughout history have argued about questions, let's say, of free will. But now we can bring in information from the biological sciences that may inform this discussion and and enrich that discussion. So um, so that this is certainly a direction that I have tried to take some of this research, which is to try to understand uh, different concepts like causality morality, um, phenomenology, uh, the nature of existence, the nature of reality, that even though these often are philosophical questions, um, we now have an ability to bring in a whole other level of information that comes from the, the neurosciences that, that helps us and tells us something about how we engage in those questions uh, what what the nature of those questions are, why we think about them in certain ways, how do we come to certain conclusions, and uh, and I think that there's a a lot of information there that that really can be helpful for us to be able to engage in those questions in a deeper and richer way than we've ever done before because we're now integrating what we what we can know philosophically with what we can know scientifically. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that clarifies that a little bit more. It helped me somewhat, yeah. I think I have a sense of the field of inquiry that you're talking about. What I'm curious about is, in all of these studies of how the brain is operating when somebody's meditating or praying or having a spiritual experience, does this tell us anything about what's actually happening in reality, about whether or not God exists or doesn't exist or spiritual realities exist or don't exist? Or do we just see what's happening in the brain when somebody's praying or meditating? Well, I think in the immediate moment, um, the data that we have really points to what's happening in our brain when we have the experience. I, I don't think we have gotten to the science, to the study yet that is able to help us document 100% 
that this is what reality is, or that's what reality is, or God exists, or God doesn't exist. Um, and this has been sort of a fundamental argument that I've been trying to make. Uh, you know, when we did our scans, for example, of Franciscan nuns in prayer, trying to communicate with God, um, what our scans show is what happens in her brain when she does the prayer, when she has that interaction with God. Uh, but it doesn't tell us, as you were asking, it doesn't tell us whether or not the reality of that experience is generated by the brain or that the brain is simply receiving the information or receiving God even uh, as, as a way of, of looking at the world and understanding the world in a very profound way. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't ever get there. Uh, part of what our research, I think, has shown us is that since every different type of experience of, of reality is manifested by some change in the brain's function, uh, it tells us that our brain is always processing reality and is always trying to come to some perspective on what that reality is. Uh, unfortunately, there's never a way for any of us to fundamentally you know, jump outside of our brain and say, okay, you know, this is what I'm thinking on the inside. This is what's out there on the outside. I know that I'm accurate. Um, but what I think this research also points us to, at least philosophically in a direction, uh, is that because of how the brain is always processing our reality, the only way that we can actually try to measure that reality in some way or another is by the the perception of of it being real and i know that sounds a little circular but um but that may be the best that we can do that you know something feels real to us and that's part of why we think it's real it's just it feels real to us um and and this is something that i've been posing to my students and colleagues for a long time you know why do we feel a table is real for example what are, what are the what are the qualities of that table what are the qualities of that experience that define it as real for us and um uh, and, and the reason why I think this issue is important ultimately is that um, if we if we really have a problem with getting outside of the brain, what kinds of experiences do human beings have where they actually describe that they get outside of their brain? Well, it turns out that the the only experiences, at least that I'm familiar with, uh, are are mystical experiences, which often have a spiritual uh, connotation to them where a person says, I, I did get beyond my brain, I got beyond my consciousness, I got beyond my ego self, and I now saw reality in a very different way. Now, again, you know, you can ask the question, well, did they really do that? I don't know. Uh, but I think that that's part of where all of this research goes, is trying to understand the nature of those experiences to see whether or not we can learn something about those experiences that may help us understand that, yeah, they really do uh, they really do actually correlate with something which is more fundamentally real as the person actually experiences it. So uh, obviously the nature of reality is extremely complex uh, and, and whether we will ever be able to truly get there or not, I don't know. Uh, but I think that by combining what we can understand about reality subjectively, consciously within ourselves, with what we also can learn about it from a neuroscientific perspective, may provide us this kind of multidisciplinary, integrated way that hasn't really been tried before. Whether that'll get us the answer or not, I don't know. But 
But at least to me, it's a new way of looking at these questions that hasn't really been fully tried, and, and maybe it'll get us uh, at least closer than what we've ever been before. So following up on what you're saying, when somebody's having some type of mystical experience and they experientially feel like they're outside of their mind, you're able, though, to see what's happening in their brain at that point in time. And so wouldn't it be fair to say that that's just a myth that they're outside of their mind? Well, there's a couple of issues with that. Uh, you know, one of the one of the biggest problems, of course, is that when somebody has that experience, theoretically, there's no way for us to then actually tap them on the shoulder and say, you know, are you outside of your body yet? Okay, you know, you are. Okay, great. You know, now we'll because if you've done that, then you've brought them back into their body, so to speak. Right. At least you brought their experience back into them. So. Um, so, so one of the problems that all of our imaging studies have, and, and this is true universally of cognitive neuroscience, is how do we know what the person is really experiencing at the moment that we are looking at what's going on in their brain? But again, even if we felt comfortable enough that we could say, yes, this person had an experience of going beyond their brain, and these are the changes that we see within their brain, um, we still have a problem in terms of the, the directional arrow of causality. Did the brain do change in such a way that made them feel like they got outside of their brain? Or did they literally get outside of their brain and the change that we see is what's happening in the brain when the person does that? Um, and of course, again, you know, at the moment, we have no way of being able to differentiate those two. But uh, I suppose, you know, I'm a, I'm a never say never kind of person. So it's certainly possible that at some point we will come up with a kind of study that integrates the subjective experience of the person as as definitively as possible with the biological substrate of that experience to tell us at least something about whether or not we can differentiate that experience as something going truly beyond our biology uh, or not. You know, maybe maybe we can explain a lot of the experience with our biology, but then there's some piece that we still can't get to. Uh, and maybe that'll tell us that there is something that's a little bit beyond what we are biologically. Or maybe we will be able to someday find out that every aspect of that experience completely can be explained by what's going on in the brain. And, uh, and therefore, you know, there is at least nothing beyond the brain in terms of consciousness or anything like that. But um, but whether or not that'll be the case, uh, I don't know. Is your intuition really that this is just an unanswered question right now? I mean, or do you have a sense that with time, a certain set of answers are going to be revealed about whether or not everything can be traced to brain activity or not? Um. I I think that there there is an opportunity to be able to get there. Um, so I mean I'm I'm an optimistic kind of guy. <laughs> so uh, I tend to think that uh, that there's always a way if we're careful enough to be able to get to some kind of answer like that. Um, but I I think uh, if there is going to be an answer, and this is why I've been so involved in the whole field of neurotheology is that it it can't be purely from the neuroscience side. Um, Purely as a neuroscientist, you you are an observer of an event, and and then you're stuck with the same problem that we talked about a few minutes ago that that you can't get outside of your own brain to look at this particular phenomena. So part of this um, part of this process, I think, is for the the scholar, for the researcher, to 
engage in that kind of an experience as well, that there there needs to be some way of trying to get at the experience itself of reality and perhaps the mystical experience of that reality as a as someone who is trying to answer these questions, as well as looking at what's going on neurobiologically and maybe even combining them within the person themselves. I mean, that, that to me is somehow uh, where I've sometimes thought about a study like that where uh, if you took somebody who was meditating and, and was able to attain that kind of a state and then they were also at the same time perhaps meditating on the brain function of that state, you know, something like that. I, there, there's got to be some sort of reflexive analysis uh, where the person is looking at themselves in some way, but also integrating the phenomenological component of the experience with the biological component. I think somewhere in there is where that kind of an answer may lie. And, you know, and that, again, I, whether or not that'll be the case, I don't know. There are certainly lots of issues and difficulties with trying to get there, uh, but I would love to continue to, to pursue the possibility of that kind of a study and really try to get at uh, something which is more uh, multidisciplinary than just simply the neuroscience of the mystical experience or the mystical experience of science, but some kind of way of integrating the two of them. And and that's what I think uh, the strength of neurotheology ultimately is about. So that means we're going to have to study meditating scientists like you? We might. <laughs> Uh, I think that's part of the process, and uh, but I, I, th- I think there's certainly all, there's so much that can be learned. I mean, there's so many things for us to question. There, there's the need to look at the, the 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 deepest and most proficient meditators. It's necessary to just look at the average person and how they experience reality and make sense of reality. Uh, there's there's the need to take a good look at science and what science can say about reality and where its limitations are. Are there certain inherent inabilities that science may have? And, and certainly we know that such um, that there are certain limitations, like uh, like the incompleteness theorem uh, or um, or Heisenberg's uncertainty principle that that kind of are are issues that physics and and, and philosophy have to contend with. Um, so so we need to continue to look at all the different limitations and abilities of science, of religious and spiritual ideas, of mystical states, meditation practices, and see where each of them can contribute to the ability to get at those fundamental questions. You know, I think related to this whole conversation for me is the big spiritual and philosophical question of what happens when we die. And I know that you've done quite a bit of research into near-death experiences. So I'm curious to know more about that, but also what has this pointed to in terms of the potential for consciousness to exist after death or not in your work? Well, um, I guess as with the other big questions, we're still trying to to ultimately figure that out. there are some studies that are going on now where people have begun to to try to see whether or not we can really document whether or not a person is able to uh, their their specific consciousness is able to extend beyond uh, the brain itself and uh, theoretically that is something that could be testable um, you know it doesn't necessarily mean that it will be or that the study is designed in a way that that will work as as accurately as possible but we do have an opportunity to potentially look at the what we certainly know anecdotally of people's reports of 
looking at uh, at the the scene of their death, look going down the hall and seeing somebody else, um, and and try to truly verify those kinds of uh, abilities, those kinds of experiences, and it ties in a little bit with some of the other fields of studies, looking at consciousness and whether consciousness can affect other objects at a distance, such as random number generators or different biological systems, uh, and and even if there is a very small change that may have dramatic consequences in terms of how we understand the nature of the human brain and mind uh, and and may really ready us for a, a paradigm shift in terms of understanding the human brain and the human mind. Um, so yes, I think some of the near-death experiences where um, we have all these abil- all these descriptions of what these experiences are and what people are doing, we can try to get at a- as much as possible whether or not the the ability to extend beyond the brain or beyond the mind in that state of death uh, or near death uh, is something that really can happen. Now, of course, the the types of studies that I have done with imaging, it becomes much harder to study the brain in death because we we never know when that's going to happen. So uh, it does create more of a conundrum from a scientific perspective to look at the biology of the experience. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't try to evaluate it in some way or another and try to learn something about the nature of that experience uh, in, in, as, in as deep a way as possible. But whether we will get again to that kind of fundamental question of, okay, does the near-death experience simply represent the brain dying or does it really pre- represent the brain transcending itself into our next realm of existence? Uh, that's something that, that, at least at the moment, we're not able to really be able to, to, to tell at the moment. When you get the answer to that, if I give you my phone number, will you just I'll like send me a text you know. message or something? <laughs> yeah, I'll be happy to let you know if I ever figure that out. Right. I don't know. I, 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 don't, I hear they don't have good reception there. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> you have trouble getting a good signal sometimes. You know, we started by talking about meditation and prayer, and we've kind of lumped them together. You know, I want to bring our conversation down now to more of a pragmatic level in terms of here's a person who really wants to improve their brain functioning, improve their brain health. You've talked some about this link between our spiritual experience and our health as being part of what we know for sure in terms of the field of neurotheology. So what's the most beneficial practice for me to do? Are you just lumping meditation and prayer together? Are there other practices? Well, that's an interesting question, and and it's also one that uh, at least the research hasn't definitively been able to tell us about. There, uh, as you're referring to, there are uh, many different kinds of meditation practices, perhaps thousands of different kinds of practices, and no one's really done the larger scale evaluation of which meditation practice is right for the right person with certain specific issues that they're dealing with. Uh, we do know that there are some meditation practices that have been widely studied, and they seem to be generally very effective. Uh, For example, mindfulness meditation has been very uh, widely studied and has been shown to be effective in reducing levels of anxiety and depression in people. Uh, People have studied transcendental meditation and, um, and, and several other forms of meditation. We studied a type of practice called Kirtan Kriya, which derives from the Kundalini Yoga tradition, and uh, that was shown to help improve memory. But we don't know for sure whether one or the other practices ultimately are better for a particular individual or for a particular goal. Uh, to, to some degree, the, the short answer is that each person has to 
kind of be an experiment in and of themselves at the moment and try to find a practice that matches their goals, matches their ideals and their ways in which they approach life, uh, and uh, and then find something that, that really has meaning for them. And if they do that, the ability to kind of consciously relax oneself, to lower their levels of stress, regardless of the practice, regardless of whether it's a meditation practice or a spiritual practice like prayer, if a person is able to engage that practice and to do that practice regularly and and feel a very positive effect from it, then that's probably the the best practice for them at the moment. Again, there may be other practices that are even better, but we we don't know that for sure. Um, so, so on one hand, we can we can look to specific studies that have been shown, and we can say, well, mindfulness meditation has been shown to do this, this, and this. But we don't know about whether other practices would be better or worse, uh, because there just hasn't been enough comparison. And this is something that that I have as a as a larger goal to be able to start to do, which is really to be able to cull data from many, even thousands of people who have done a variety of different practices, and to see which ones seem to work best for women versus men for older versus younger. Um, and uh, I, I think, though, that that the the elements of a practice that are important is something that we can say a little something about. So, for example, uh, there, if there are practices that help us to focus our mind, and these are often meditation practices where you're concentrating on an object, for example, those tend to help the brain concentrate. They tend to help the brain work more efficiently to focus our attention, and therefore they may be beneficial for people who feel that they're not able to kind of, you know, organize their world well or, or whatever, that that kind of a, an attention-focusing practice might be beneficial. Uh, most of practices do help to lower levels of stress, but you'd certainly want to be involved in a practice where you felt like it was helping to lower your levels of stress and help you to cope better with whatever issues a particular person is dealing with. Um, and, uh, and I think that to some degree, maybe the most important element of all of these practices, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying a minute ago, is to find something that really has meaning for you as a person. And therefore, if it's a meditation practice that's very secular or a prayer practice that has a lot to do with your own spiritual or religious tradition, the more you're, you can wrap your brain around it, the more you want to do it, the more you feel good about doing it, the more it makes you feel positive and converts whatever negative emotions you have to positive emotions, that's going to be a practice that's going to be very good for you. If you find that you're engaged in a practice that winds up making you feel anxious and stressed or confused or whatever, then that's not going to be the right practice, uh, regardless of how many studies have shown that it can be good. So I think that's kind of where we are at the moment, that we don't really, we can't really say that this one particular practice is the right practice for a particular person. People are going to have to try different things, test the waters, try to find things that, that try to find practices that, that mirror their ways of looking at the world, mirror the, the issues that they're, you know, help them with those particular issues that they're facing. And that's probably going to be the most successful practice. And, and, and I think the other takeaway from this is also that if you try a practice and it doesn't work well for you, that doesn't mean that meditation in general doesn't work well. It just may mean that that particular practice isn't so good. You know, some people are just not good at sitting quietly. They need a practice where they can be moving around. Maybe they need to do a yoga practice or a tai chi practice. Uh, other people are very comfortable just lying still and they, and they don't want to be moving around. So, you know, there you have to really take stock as to who you are as a person and what your goals are and then try to match that up as best as possible with a particular practice. 
Now, I have a two-part question here, and you're the kind of person who can answer it, the kind of person we'll be studying in the future, which is you've looked at what's happening in the brain from the outside. You're looking at some kind of printout or some kind of screen. So you see when somebody's meditating or praying what's actually happening. So I'd love to know what that looks like. And then the second part, the part that you can answer is, do you now have a sense of what it feels like inside your brain when you're doing an effective practice? Like, oh, I can sense that this practice is working for me because there's a some kind of somatic feel to it. I can feel this part of my brain in a slightly different way or something. So, well, you know, the, with regard to the to the your first question, um, the the physiology that we are observing uh, it does depend on the exact type of meditation practice. But but to take a common form, which is where a person will focus their mind on a particular thing, on a particular object. Typically, what we see happening in the brain is that as you begin to focus your attention, you activate a part of the brain called the frontal lobe, which is right behind your forehead. And uh, this is a part of the brain that begins to light up with activity whenever you focus your mind on anything. So certainly with, when you focus your mind on an object, and whether that's just like a candle or whether it's a spiritual object like a cross, um, your your frontal lobes turn on. And the frontal lobes, again, going back to the overall health benefit, the frontal lobes are involved in helping to modulate our emotional responses and also help us to focus our attention better so that if you kind of exercise your frontal lobes by doing the meditation practice, then your brain in general is going to be able to respond better to tasks that require our ability to focus attention. Uh, as the person continues to meditate, then they are going to affect other changes in the brain. Um, for practices that are that have an impact on our emotional system, then you're going to see changes in the, what's called the limbic system. Uh, it's a ver- it's a more central part of the brain that houses most of our emotional centers. These are the emotional centers of very positive emotions as well as very negative emotions. And by engaging in a practice like meditation or prayer, you begin to alter the activity levels. Uh, If your activity levels are very high, then you might wind up suppressing them. On the other hand, if you're engaged in a prayer practice where you feel very, you know, this huge rush of energy, then you might actually increase the activity in those particular areas of the brain. Uh, And another area that we have been particularly interested in over the years has been an area of the brain called the parietal lobe. Uh, This is located towards the back part of the brain. And this normally takes our sensory information and helps us to create a a sense of ourself, an orientation of ourself with regard to the world, and helps us to connect to that world. So one of the common experiences that people have is a loss of the sense of self, is the loss of the sense of space and time. And what our data at least suggests is that this kind of a change is associated, this kind of subjective change is associated with a decrease of activity in this parietal lobe, which to me makes sense because as you lose your sense of self and lose your sense of space and time, it's associated with a loss of activity in the areas of our brain that normally help us create our sense of self and create our sense of space and time. Um, so those are some of the major changes that we find. But but again, depending on the experience, depending on the practice, we might see different 
changes in the brain. Uh, if it's a visualized, if it's a visualization practice, we may see changes in the visual system of the brain. If it's a prayer practice, we might see changes in the verbal areas of the brain because it's a it's language that they're doing. Um, so there, it's a very complex set of processes that begin to occur in the brain, and uh, and this is part of how we're beginning to unravel the the incredible complexity and richness of what these practices and experiences ultimately do for us as human beings. Now, as far as um, your question about how does one... Your subjective experience, yeah. The, the subject, now, are, are you speaking about me personally or are you talking about people in general? <laughs> I'd be curious about both. Both. Well, I think for people in general, um, to some degree, when a person really gets into that meditation practice, the feeling that, uh, I mean, there are a couple of things that people will feel. One is that they may feel actual physiological changes in their body. They may feel their heart beating faster, beating slower. They may feel their their breathing rate go higher or slower. In most cases, slower. So you might feel a deep, uh, profound sense of relaxation. And that uh, is one of the kinds of experiences that people often will describe during their practice uh, of meditation or prayer. The other thing, which I guess is, is sort of related to this, is sometimes people often feel a kind of a kind of flow experience where where the whole process is almost happening automatically. They they kind of really lose their own sense of self, their own sense of of willfulness uh, in the process. It just starts happening almost almost automatically. So if you really feel like you're kind of losing yourself, you're, you know you're in the zone as as an athlete might say, or a flow experience as other people have described. That to me is the kind of experience that uh, at least. On a on a on a relatively simplistic level, a meditator may may strive for. Now, obviously, uh, for those people who are engaged in these practices as part of their spiritual paths, they may be looking for much more profound kinds of experiences, uh, pers- mystical types of experiences. For example, uh, the problem with those, of course, is that one still never really knows when those will happen. But I think for the average person who is trying to engage in a meditation program. Those are the kinds of experiences that they're looking for, a feeling of relaxation and calmness, a lower level of stress, and this feeling that the practice becomes kind of automatic uh, and that as that begins to happen, this is the kind of experience that you ultimately will reap some benefits for from, uh, especially in terms of lowering levels of anxiety or depression. And um, uh, and this is also part of why uh, religious and spiritual experiences and practices uh, like prayer, and, and we've studied and reported other types of practices like speaking in tongues, uh, all of these different practices have a very profound effect on our health and well-being. And uh, and we can start to document those. And we, uh, our our most recent book, where we talked about uh, called How God Changes Your Brain, talks a lot about these very positive, beneficial effects of these kinds of um, uh, of these kinds of practices, and how they actually help to improve your memory functions lower your levels of stress, anxiety, augment your immune function, which overall improve your, your sense of well-being. And, and that's, I think, what most people are, are trying to go for. Now, again, if somebody is really engaged in a meditation practice or prayer practice as part of their, of their spiritual pursuits and their religious pursuits, now we're talking about something a little bit different because you're talking about trying to get to an experience that changes the way you understand the world and the way you, in which you make meaning about the world and, and understand the absolute nature of reality. And that is a, a more 
uh, you know, obviously more profound experience, but that's something that um, uh, is usually for people who are engaging that uh, more deeply. I think part of where I was driving at with asking you personally, and this is what I'm trying to get at, is, is it possible to actually feel into the brain itself how when you talk about the parietal lobe or the frontal lobe? Can you actually feel that from the inside? Um, I personally have never <laughs> felt that. Uh, you know, I I don't think most people would, would define it that way or describe it that way. Uh, since we're, we're inside the brain uh, as we do our things, um, we don't tend to feel the brain. And actually, in an odd sort of way, uh, and I don't know if this answers your question, but um, the brain itself does not have sensory reception. So uh, most brain surgery is done with the person conscious so that they actually can continue to to speak to the person, and that helps them to actually evaluate which parts of the brain uh, they're, 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 they're fooling around with in the surgery so that they don't damage language or they don't damage, you know, different, different functional processes in the brain. Uh, but there are people who will, will say, you know, certainly when you talk about, uh, for example, the, the, the different chakras, that may be something that's kind of a, a similar kind of experience to the kind that you're talking about where people can kind of rest within different chakras within their body and how they, they, they feel or think uh, about that particular experience. Um, but I, I don't know if anybody's ever been able to tell me that, you know, they, they feel their frontal lobes work. I got you. Um, okay. I, well, that's my yeah. first goofy question, but now I'm going to follow it with a second goofy question, which okay. is, just bear with me, please, Dr. Yeah. Newberg. You know, someone that I know was mentioning that there are experiments going on with something that he called God helmets, where you could yeah. put a helmet on your head and it would stimulate the different parts of the brain, electrically stimulate those parts right. of the brain are magnetically stimulate them, the same parts that are being lit up when someone mm -hmm. engages in meditation or prayer. And, you know, wouldn't this right. be simpler? I could wake up in the morning and put on my pink God helmet and go to work <laughs> and, you know, skip my meditation practice. What do you think about that? Uh, well, I, I think it's very interesting on, on several different levels. One is is that it does teach us something about the parts of the brain that seem to be involved in these kinds of experiences. So if we know that by sending in an electrical stimulus to a parts of the temporal lobe, which is part of where that limbic system is, we can induce different types of emotional experiences uh, or different types of experiences of a sensed presence or an experience that is spiritual-like. Uh, that tells us something about that part of the brain and its relationship to those kinds of experiences. So it, it's a piece of the larger puzzle of trying to understand what the brain is doing uh, during these different kinds of experiences. Um, on the other hand, whether or not, you know, now the other question that you're kind of asking about, which is which we frequently kind of deal with, is whether or not um, you, it, whether artificially stimulating these, and uh, I'll put artificial in quotes for the moment, uh, artificially stimulating these experiences is a good thing uh, or not. And part of my answer to that question is, is that to some degree, people have been stimulating these experiences since the beginning of time. I mean, this is what, that in many ways, is what meditation does. It, it, meditation is not perhaps a natural thing to do with your brain, but by doing it and by doing it repeatedly, you can induce a very, very powerful kind of experience. Uh, so is that any better or worse than putting a helmet on. I mean, obviously, it might be simpler to put the helmet on uh, if, it, if it turns out to be uh, able to really do what, what the claims are. But, um, but assuming that it is, then 
that that may be a, a very unique way of trying to stimulate that kind of an experience. Uh, another, I think, very relevant example are different drug-induced experiences. And people, again, for thousands of years have used different substances to help induce spiritual states. Now, on one hand, they are, quote-unquote, artificial because the person would not have that state without uh, taking that substance. But on the other hand, for the person who is doing that and engaged in that practice, for for, for example, the shaman who, who, who takes those mushrooms, that is not an artificial experience in the sense that it is a false experience. For them, it is the window, if you will, into the spiritual realm for that person or that person's mind. So by taking, by whether you put a helmet on, whether you meditate, whether you take a drug, whether you use other types, you know, near-death states or whatever, um, all of these are different types of states that affect the brain in certain ways and also seem to be associated with very profound experiences. So um, it seems to me then that, one, we want to explore all the different ways in which different types of religious and spiritual states can be stimulated, to, that which helps us understand the nature of those states and understand the biology of those states as well. But it still doesn't get us to the, the ultimate reality aspect of that experience. So, you know, the analogy that I always like to use is, and whether you use drugs or, or the helmet that you were talking about, uh, I, I wear glasses. So when I wake up in the morning, the world's a very fuzzy place. And I put my glasses on and the world becomes clear. Now, the world didn't change. My perception of the world changed. So who's to say that the way our brain functions normally looks at the world in a certain way, which, you know, has a certain fuzziness to it. And that if you electrically stimulate the brain to augment its function, or you activate certain neurotransmitters by giving a drug, or you practice meditation, which stimulates the brain, that now the brain, it's like putting glasses on the brain, and now the brain sees the world in a much clearer way than it did before. The world, again, hasn't changed either way, but we are now perceiving it in a, in a more fundamental way and in a more real way. So we don't know whether or not simply because we can stimulate, even if we can, even if we can stimulate an experience through a helmet, through drugs, through meditation, whether or not that ability to stimulate the experience uh, means that it is a false experience. And, uh, and in my view, I think in, in many ways those experiences are just as real, and of course people frequently describe them as being even more real, uh, than our everyday reality experiences. Now, it turns out that the, the specific research that you're talking about is a little controversial because uh, this helmet and the, the ability to send in these electromagnetic um, waves doesn't really produce at least all of the varieties of experiences that people can have. There was another study that was done that was designed to replicate it and didn't, didn't, wasn't able to replicate it very well. Uh, and so there's still some controversy as to, as to whether or not um, that particular idea of using a helmet to stimulate these experiences really works. But theoretically, it should be something that's possible. And certainly some of the, some of the interesting early work that was done uh, in people who were undergoing brain surgery, where they literally electrically, you know, they touched an electrode to certain parts of the brain and stimulated some very profound experiences for people. Um, you know, we know that that can happen. I just don't know for sure whether it can happen with, with a, you know, a modified uh, motorcycle helmet that's emitting radio waves. You know, I think the question that comes up for me besides the fact that I want to be on the waiting list for one of the first pink 
God helmets when they're available, is <laughs> if we say that these experiences are just as real, whether it's through meditation or drugs or electrostimulation, the experience itself, is there, though, something different about the enduring change that might come in the person's being, their ability to integrate, to have some stabilized way of living in a different way that might be different from a neurobiological perspective, meaning is there some sort of witness in the brain that's available during a meditation practice that wouldn't be there, let's say, in a drug experience, something like that? Yeah, you know, there, some of the research that we've been doing has started to point to that, and, and so there's there's not enough data yet that can really answer your question fully. But but what we've done um, in looking at, for example, long-term meditators versus non-meditators, we find that there is a difference in the way their brain works in comparison to a non-meditator. Uh, when we have studied people where we started them out on a meditation program, we find that their brain literally changes over time and is corresponds with changes in their emotional state or their cognitive state. So, so I think the short answer is is that there's definitely a change that occurs when people are, are having these profound experiences. And, and certainly subjectively or phenomenologically, we see this um, in a very big way in their lives. I mean, when somebody has a near-death experience, when somebody has a mystical experience, in that moment in which they have the experience, they, have, they undergo a, com- a pretty complete transformation uh, of how they look at themselves, about how they look at the world, about how they look at their relationships and their job and so forth. So there's no question that subjectively these profound states really have an impact on the person. And we're starting now to see that there are these long-term changes that occur in the brain. And uh, and again, you know, one the study that we did uh, looking at Kirtan Kriya meditation, which is a 12-minute-a-day meditation that we had older individuals did uh, do, and uh, and we reported this in in, in our uh, book, How God Changes Your Brain, that there were profound changes in the different parts of their brain that helped them to uh, function in terms of their memory, in terms of how they perceive reality, and uh, what I kept saying to to myself and and to people you know who who come across this data is, look at the changes that you're seeing by simply doing a practice for 12 minutes a day, and now extrapolate that to somebody who is doing a meditation program for you know for years of their lives, hours a day, for example. You can really see how how profoundly the brain can be changed by these practices and these kinds of experiences. So, um, uh, but, but what's also interesting is how, you know, studies that have been done looking at momentary experiences, like a near-death experience, there was an interesting study that was done looking at the drug psilocybin that showed that that caused very transformative experiences within people. And, um, and you know, and not a surprise, but but it's amazing how the brain can rearrange itself in such a small period of time, whereas, you know, normally we think about meditation as being this very, you know, a very profound change, but it takes many, many years to do it. So we're still learning about how this change occurs, how it can change quickly, how it can change over time. But nonetheless, we're clearly starting to see those kind of more profound changes, and uh, and and we just need to learn more about it. We need more studies to really help us to, to to figure that out. Is there any research though that shows that one of these methods, whether it's drugs or meditation or electrostimulation or anything else, that there's more lasting change with one approach versus another? I have not seen any data that would support 
that um, you know, it, it seems like when people have very, very intense experiences, whether they are drug-induced, whether they are mystical experiences spontaneously occurring or mystical experiences from meditation practices, that all of them um, can can potentially result in long-term changes that can that really can last a person's lifetime. Um, but but they they're they're not you know real un real common. Um, so you know it's it's if somebody just decides to hey I, I want to do a meditation program or I'm going to join my yoga class and and do some practices and stuff like that. That's probably not where it's going to happen. Where it's going to happen. But uh, when people do have a near death experience or a very very unusual drug induced state or some kind of extreme experience during a meditation or prayer or deep spiritual practice. Um, almost all of them can potentially uh, result in a very long-term uh, effect on a person, and I, I don't think there's enough data yet to tell us that one kind of way of doing it is, is better or worse than the other. Um, and it may come back down to your earlier question about which practice should people do. Um, you know, some people might be more affected by one thing than another, and um, and at this point we, we don't know. So it's... Uh, the, the good news for me, at least, as the researcher, is there's a lot of a lot of stuff for us to still look for and and to try to learn. Um, but um, but the downside is is that we still we still don't know a whole lot. So there's just one more subject that I want to make sure we have a chance to touch on, which is sure. that I know you write about faith, what it is, and how faith interacts with our brain. And I wonder if you can talk a bit about that. Well, I think faith to me has kind of two components to it, and uh, on 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 its broadest level, what we're talking about when we talk about faith is is a person who has faith and an optimistic belief about the world and about how the world is going to unfold for them and how their life is going to unfold. And what what most research has shown is that people who do have faith that the world is going to be a good place and that things are going to work out for themselves, uh, those are the people who tend to do better in life, tend to be healthier. Uh, it, you know, Obviously, you, you can't extrapolate that to each individual, but uh, when you look at people on a population level, those people who have the most faith in the world and in, in the faith in things working out for them, those are the ones who are going to do the best. And In part, they do the best because perhaps they have the lowest levels of stress. In part, they do the best because they're the most actively involved in whatever it is that they're doing in their life, and so they engage it fully, and that, that ultimately is going to be beneficial for them. Uh, but um, uh, and, and you know whether certainly when you're talking about health issues and health crises, I mean people who have faith that they're going to get over their cancer or, or deal with a particular problem, are more likely to be compliant with their treatments and and uh, and ultimately just their mind. We, uh, we you know we're learning more and more about the placebo effect uh, as such a powerful mediator of our health, and uh, and we should all try to do our best to take advantage of it. The more we think that we're going to do well, and the more we think that we're going to be successful, and the more that we think that we're going to be healthy, the more likely we are to do that. It's not a guarantee, but um, the more likely we are to do that. Uh, and of course, the other component of faith, which is the other area we talked about kind of from the beginning of, of neurotheology, is, is is the faith in something spiritual. And um, and that, too, contributes to that overall sense of well-being and, uh, and a positive way of looking at themselves and how the person connects to the world. 
It provides them a, a sense of meaning, uh, a sense of, of, of understanding, uh, a sense of, of calmness, and, 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 and a notion that the, that the world, because they understand that, is going to unfold for them in a positive way. And therefore, the more all of us have faith, the better off we ultimately will do for ourselves. And, and that's something that I think there is sufficient data to support. Uh, how it ultimately plays out in the brain, we don't fully know yet. But, um, but yes, I, I think that having faith is perhaps in many ways one of the most important things that all of us can try to, to enrich within ourselves and encourage within ourselves and, and, and with others. And that the more we do that, uh, like I said, the better off we ultimately will be and hopefully the better off uh, all of us will be, and, and including uh, us as a society and, and as, a, as a planet. As a final question about this topic of faith, you know, it's not something you can make up. You can't say to yourself, you know, I'll be healthier if I have strong faith, so I'm going to increase my faith because it's good for my health. I mean, you can't make yourself have faith. It's something some people seem to have it. A lot of people don't. So how would you address that person who, for whatever reason, maybe they want to have more faith in possibility, in the goodness of the universe, but they don't? Right. Well, you know, there's 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 a couple of things with that. Uh, to some degree, um, you know, each of us has the ability to have faith, and and as with all uh, all skills, if you want to call it that, or all uh, aspects of us as human beings, there there is a bit of a bell curve, and some people, as you mentioned, do have a lot of faith, and some people are much more pessimistic about things. But what the research also is starting to show, especially in the fields of like positive psychology, is that by by purposefully engaging in it, we can actually engender at least as high a level of of faith in a particular person as we can. So that may not necessarily make somebody who's generally pessimistic a truly optimistic person, but it may make them a little less pessimistic. And what we do know about how the brain works, uh, there's a cute phrase that the neurons that fire together wire together. And what that means is that the more we concentrate, the more we focus our attention on being positive, being faithful, things that we're uh, that we have gratitude for, things that we uh, think are going to go well, even if we don't always believe it, but we just say, you know what, I think things are going to go okay. I think things are going to go okay. Um, over time, that will actually change the way the brain works, and it will change the way a particular person views their reality. So, by engaging in practices that help to augment a feeling of faith, a feeling of optimism, a feeling of calmness and well-being, like practices such as meditation and prayer, then the, any individual can optimize their feelings of faith. Now, again, it's not going to take somebody who has none and suddenly make them one of the most faithful feeling people in the world, but it might be able to nudge them a little bit down that path. And, and uh, you know, we, we don't know for sure how advantageous that may be for a person. But what the research would suggest is that every little bit helps. So that, uh, you know, even for those people who don't typically look at the world very positively, um, if they begin to concentrate on the world and focus on the world in more positive ways and listen to things that have a more positive view on the world. You know, if, if you if you go on to talk radio and you listen to everybody complain about everything that's going on, then you you feel negative. You have mirror neurons in your brain that reflect the negativity. Whereas if you listen to somebody who speaks positively, and whether it's a minister or a, a priest or just an inspiring person or or whatever, then then those are the feelings and the and the emotions that you will engender within your 
yourself. And um, so, you know, everybody has an opportunity to be able to bring their mind, bring their concentration to ideas and concepts that are more positive and, and bring us to a more optimistic and faithful way of looking at things. And if people begin to do that, they will help to optimize those kinds of feelings within themselves. But, I mean, you're right, you can't, you can't artificially make that happen, but the more that we continue to focus on those positive ideas, uh, the more the brain literally rewires itself to be more positive, and the person will start to progress down a path towards a greater sense of, of faith and well-being. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully for everyone, that would be enough to, to help them through. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Andrew Newberg. He's the author of several very popular books, as well as a three-session audio learning course with Sounds True called God and the Brain, the Physiology of Spiritual Experience. Thank you so much for being with us on Insights at the Edge. Uh, Thank you for having me on the program. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.